today is April 11th. Welcome to your episode 281 of the At Percussion podcast. With me, as always, are my hosts, Ksenia Komunovic. Hey, Ben. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Ksenia? I'm doing great. Doing great. Good. And Carly Vina. Hey, Ben. How's it going? I'm doing well. How are you, Carly? Yeah, good. We're uh, we're surviving a thunderstorm right now, so if you hear any interesting sounds, that could be what's going on. <laughs> well, Carly, I believe it's up to you to tell us what is what happened in history on release day, April twenty second. Yeah, I'll tell you what. This is a this is a good one. It is Ethel Smythe's birthday. Ethel was born in eighteen fifty eight. Um, and passed away, of course, in 1944. But April 22nd is her birthday. I thought I'd share with you all a little bit about her and her life. Um, she chose to pursue a career in music totally against her father's wishes. Um, and in 1887, she left England to study at the Leipzig Conservatory. She studied there for only one year, but she stayed in Leipzig and studied harmony and counterpoint with Heinrich von Herzogenberg. How'd I do, Ksenia? Beautiful, A+. Plus. As the, as the European representative. Um, <laughs> it's said that during this time, she had the chance to interact with a lot of major composers of that time, including Brahms, Dvorak, um, Clara Schumann, and Tchaikovsky. And Tchaikovsky described Smythe in his memoirs as one of the few women composers whom one can seriously consider to be achieving something valuable in the field of musical creation, which is um, a nice compliment for her, but also, you know, kind of completely backhanded. Um, anyway, she was at least on the radar of major composers like Tchaikovsky at the time. Um, after her time in Leipzig in 1890, she returned to England and she gained notoriety there with some orchestral compositions, including her serenade in D and a mass in D. I think she must have liked the key of D. Um, and from 1893 to 1910, she was really focused on composing a series of operas. Um, and she had successful performances in Europe and in North America. A couple of her notable operas were Fantasio in Weimar in 1898. Um, Der Wald was performed in Berlin and in London in 1902. And Der Strandrecht, um, the Wreckers in English, um, were performed in Leipzig, Prague, and London in 1906 and 1909. And in addition to her musical work, Ethel Smythe is really known for her work um, in the English suffragette movement for women's rights. And one of her pieces, The March of the Women, was adopted as the anthem of the Women's Social and Political Union. So here, what you see, if you're listening, if you're checking it out on YouTube, you'll see the sheet music to the March of the Women, which was as I said, this anthem of the Women's Social and Political Union. Um, and actually, I tried kind of reading through it. It's, it's kind of hard to sing. It's, it's a tough one for, you know, a, a protest anthem, something like that. But there it is. And a, a pretty easy Google search. Um, we'll find a couple of performances on YouTube, too, if you want to hear it. And this is, this is kind of a, a notable thing. She was arrested in 1912 for breaking windows, I assume, during a protest and served two months in prison. And when she was in prison, her friend and conductor, um, Thomas Beecham, visited her. And at that time, she was directing a performance of the March of the Women sung by her fellow suffragettes who were also in prison at the time. Um, so during World War One, Smythe worked as an assistant radiology in a French military hospital, and during those years, she was becoming increasingly deaf. And during that time, she turned from writing music to writing 
memoirs, and she actually published eight volumes of a series of memoirs entitled Impressions That Remained, um, and these publications started coming out in 1919. Um, she became Dame Ethel Smythe in 1922 and received honorary degrees from the University of, of St. Andrews in Manchester, and in 1926 she became the first woman to receive an honorary doctorate in music from Oxford University. So it's pretty, pretty notable, all the success that she had. Um, so today, of course, it's also Earth Day. But today, April 22nd, you can celebrate Ethel Smythe's birthday. Wow, thank you so much, Carly. Excellent. So if you're an avid follower of the podcast, uh, you might recall many, many episodes ago when we had Brian Nosny on. And I mentioned that uh, it was a shocker to me when I went to college that composers don't have to be dead in order to be composers. And so I'm very pleased to have a living composer with us today. Our guest today is Michael Lorello. Michael is a composer and recording slash mixing engineer based in Northwest Ohio. His compositions have been presented at Carnegie Hall, the Lincoln Center, PASIC, and the Bangon Can Summer Festival. He's collaborated with percussionists, including the Icarus Quartet, Yale Percussion Group, the Arcs Duo, and So Percussion. Welcome to the podcast, Michael Arello. Thank you very much, Ben. Thanks. I am definitely alive, so that's <laughs> good to note. Um, we'll yeah, we'll see great how to that's going by the end of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, Michael, uh, my first exposure to your music was actually a wonderful, wonderful recording that Ksenia did of your piece, Spine. Um, and it, it just like, it's one of those, it just has this, uh, in a way, like almost this like hairy parts, just like tribal quality to it that like, I was like, I don't, I don't understand anything about what's happening, but I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so very much. I guess because that was my starting place with your music. Could you tell us about that piece? And it seems like it's gotten quite a bit of mileage. Yeah, it's it it gets performed um, pretty often. I feel really fortunate um, that folks have you know found something in it that they enjoy. And um, but you know that piece was my first time collaborating with. I think you had Jeff Stern um, on the podcast recently or yep, soon. Yep. Okay, yeah. So um, we I wrote that piece uh, while I was at Yale, and um, Jeff was there at the time, and um, Bob and Sice had uh, commissioned that um that piece and it was kind of uh, I had just finished writing an orchestra piece and so I was it was sort of like the end of um I guess 2014 completely spent and Bob says hey would you like to write this piece for Yale Percussion Group and so of course I'd love to um when is the premiere and he said oh it's February <laughs> so this February <laughs> so Basically, we all um, kind of stayed around over Christmas break uh, that year, and I would write a little piece of the, um, a little like a minute or a minute and a half and give it to the group. And they would learn that while I was writing the next minute, minute and a half. And then we just kind of put together the piece that way. Um, so there was no going, no going backwards. It was just going forwards as far as the writing process, which was uh, really interesting and difficult. That's how it came about, though. Gotcha. Yeah, your story reminds me, there's that, that great quote from Leonard Bernstein we've talked about several times. To achieve great things, two things are needed, a plan and not quite enough time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely true. I think the second, like the lack of second guessing, I think, um, is, is uh, I think it connects a lot with um, the way that piece feels to me, where it's direct, it's not really 
trying to do anything too complicated. It's just sort of here's what it is, um, you know, and it's not uh, it's not too like overwrought or fussy. And that's something that I, I like about it in terms of the writing um, as I look back on it. So that piece is my jam. I love that piece so much. And I remember um, I, I I think that is the first piece and this is I don't, I don't know if this is a good thing for me um, to say this out loud, but that's the first piece when I, when I saw like a setup that I was like, I want to play this. There was, <laughs> there is some fabulous, fascinating melodic groove, rhythmic quality. That's just, it drives so much. And it's so exactly as you wrote, it's seductive. That's the first thing that's, that's written on top. It has to be seductive. So I remember um, playing it uh, at UM uh, for a, you know a few times and then we went to Serbia and I don't know if that was the European premiere but I just I jammed out to it so much I loved it and then I spoke to our friend here again from Yale Dimitri Nilov and I was like I really want to record this I love this piece so much I can't explain what kind of emotions come out of me when I get to play those four over threes on those bongos and Dimitri was just like uh, you do understand that that doesn't make any sense because Mike composed and produced that whole recording like nothing better will ever happen on this planet with that piece. And I was just like, yeah, but I want to contribute. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I, I, Mike, I mean, thank you so much for that piece, but also, damn it, you set the bar so high that uh, we decided, you know, it's, it's, there's just no way we can top your, the, the first thing that you popped out into the world. There's just nothing we could do. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. That's, that yeah, means a lot to hear, to hear that. Um, but I hope that folks do perform it and record it. Um, you know, I'm, uh, you know, it, it was, I, that might have been the first piece that I did sort of all the way through like that where I wrote it I was involved in the very first recording I was the engineer I mixed it um and it, that that is great but um I love to hear what other folks do to it performance wise and how they approach it recording wise um, I think that's fascinating well it's I mean, I'm sure that it will be. And we did, we, we had, a, 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 I think, a fabulous live experience that we, we posted online and the television recorded that. But I mean, just that piece, it's so perfect. It's, it's so perfect. And the recording is so perfect. You've done such a wonderful job. It's, it's incredible how pure that sound is and how it's fabulously orchestrated and just I can't thank you enough, really. That piece is one of those where when it comes on the program, I have no fear. I'm just like, yes, this is the time when we go for it. It's just so rock and roll. I love it. Thank you so much. It's, I'll stop talking. It's also it's <laughs> interesting you. to me to hear you talk about it, Ksenia, because like when you started talking about the recordings, I've, I was like, oh, I, I've never actually seen it performed live. I've only seen recordings. But it's interesting, there are some pieces I think that work really well live, but not so much on recordings. Like I, I don't wanna hear the really, really minimalist Steve Reich pieces on recordings, like piano phase. I wanna experience that live. It's, it doesn't make any sense to me to listen to it on a recording and vice versa. There are some pieces that I think only work really well live. And like, for example, Keiko Abe, like, why would I record Keiko Abe's music when her recording is the best? I mean, <laughs> you can't do any better than her playing her music. 
but I really would be interested to perform it live or to hear someone else perform it live. Whereas this piece, I think it works so well on recordings and live. It just carries that energy that works on a live performance. And there's so much detail to it that can be captured on a, a, a well-produced recording. So, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Mike, thank you so much for that. That's such a treasure to us all. And anytime I've played it anywhere, or even my students, people come up and they're like, wow, that was amazing. I want it. Where do we get it? So oh. you, you've put some drugs in there. There's something in there. <laughs> thank you very much. I mean, I, I will definitely credit, um, you know, Bob Van Sice was very direct in kind of what he was looking for. And, you know, he was looking for something that, um, Ife Fu was a graduating um, percussionist that year. And so he said, I want something that features her work. And so we talked a lot, her and I, about like what she likes and doesn't like. And that connected a lot with, you know, what the idea of a female percussionist is from her perspective and what she requested me to do um, to like have her embody, you know, kind of her feeling of, of how she wanted folks to see her. Um, and the other part of it was that Bob said he wants a concert opener. And um, so he wanted something that was big that the group could walk out on the stage and before the applause was even finished, could start playing. And so that was sort of like the way that he set the stage for me. And I think that went a long way and sort of, I could just imagine, oh, okay, I can imagine that piece, you know? And that was, I think kind of why it turned out, <laughs> a big part of why it turned out the way it did is those two, two things. It must be rewarding as a composer also to get to work with performers like Yale Percussion Group and Ksenia. I mean, can't can't ask for any better than that. No, and and just to have, I mean, that was really probably the the most collaborative experience up to that point that I had had, where I had, um, you know, I was able to work with performers who would tell me, you know, this section feels too long, or you didn't orchestrate this correctly, or um, this instrument is. We, we won't use that, that sounds terrible there. You know, to be able to sort of have this dialogue back and forth, um, this very true collaboration, um, and sort of ever since uh, um, pieces that I've written since then, um, I have to have that component. It can't just be, I deliver you a score and then you say thank you and that's it. Like, um, I don't write good music under those conditions um, after having that experience with YPG. So Mike, you're leading directly into what I wanted to ask you more about, which was what are some qualities um, in performers that make the collaboration process more rewarding? Um, I think most of our listeners are performers and, and aspiring young percussionists. Um, and, and also a side note, do you have any favorite favorite collaborations that you've had over the years? Yeah, that, thank you, Carly. That's a great question. Um, I, I, think, um, I think when I write for people I know, those pieces always turn out better. When I have some sort of personal connection where I've had a drink with them or a coffee or hung out with them virtually or whatever it is, um, I don't do so well, or the pieces just don't turn out as well for some reason if I don't know the person somewhat closely. Um, so I think that's the first requirement is I need to know what makes this person tick, um, You know what sort of is inside that they wanna do. Um, and that's usually the first question that I ask someone who says, you know, well, I would like to commission you or I'd like to commission you is um, I like to get a sense of, well, where, where are you going artistically? Where are you headed? Like, where's your life headed? Where have you been? Um, because I want to see if that intersects with where I'm trying to go, because if it's not, then I may, it may be a great 
you know, opportunity, but it may not be the right thing. Um, so that's really the thing that I look for. It's, it's like dating, <laughs> like, you're, like, can I connect with this person and are we headed in the right direction um, or the same direction, I should say. Sure, yeah, um, and it's not something you can, you know, fabricate really like a connection and inspiration for a piece. Yeah. So have, have you had favorite collaborations? I assume that working with Bob Van Sice and Yale Percussion Group has been a highlight, but any other any other notable or favorite collaborations that you've had? Boy, um, yeah, I've had um, some great collaborations with Icarus Quartet, um, which there, you know, obviously a lot of overlap <laughs> between Yale Percussion Group and that group. Um, they have become kind of like, they have spoiled spoiled it in a way for me where um, <laughs> they are so direct and honest and easy to work with and um, they're, they ch will challenge me and push me and that it's difficult to go to go into another a different situation with someone that doesn't we don't have that rapport um, so those have been great collaborations um, churches made out of shipwrecks and I also reached out um, I uh, geez what was the oh big things um, I reorchestrated for them uh, for an album that we're about to record. Um, it's another piece that I had written for um, an amplified quintet that is now percussion uh, percussion duo and piano duo. Um, but another non-percussion one that was great is um, a piece I wrote for Sam Suggs, uh, who's a bass player. Um, and the piece is called Plead. And that was another kind of that type of experience where, you know, he would he completely transformed the way that I thought about that piece. And he came back to me with, you know, an analysis so deep of different sections. I was like, yeah, I don't know if I was thinking that, but that's amazing, Sam, you know? Um, so he took he took that collaboration in an amazing direction and the piece continues to evolve, uh, like, I guess it's five years since I wrote it for him. That's great, well, thanks. Well, speaking of collaborations and our correspondence, you uh, mentioned that you're doing a new piece for Jeff Stern with prepared vibraphone on electronics. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, that is right beside me. This is just the first draft. What, is, that. what is the title? Tell the me. title is, I always visit the same imaginary city when I dream. By the way, for anyone that's listening audio only on YouTube, he held up the score. If that's oh, I'm sorry. That, yeah, that's what that pause was. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, yeah. So it's for um, uh, vibraphone, a couple other percussion instruments, um, some light preparations on the vibes, and um, uh, electronics, um, which are a lot of actually prepared vibraphone sounds and prepared piano sounds. So it's kind of a sort of prepared. Um, uh, sound world, I guess. But yes, yeah, so I'm just finishing that up if I can get my act together and actually <laughs> get it to him. Is it, um, is it, uh, is it like four track? Like, does the performer have a click or is it just coming through the house, so to speak? That's, that remains to be seen. <laughs> um, yeah, Jeff has not, um, I think I just showed you more than he has seen. So <laughs> we'll work out together. <laughs> <laughs> more um, more details about the performance. Um, I'll pretty much send him where I'm at and then let him sort of push back on it. And, and uh, you know, I'd love to do it without the click if possible, um, but if he prefers that, then no problem. Yeah, I saw uh, a while back, I saw Cameron Leach play uh, 
I can't believe I'm forgetting his name. The guy that's in Third Coast Percussion, David Skidmore, Skidmore yeah. uh, has a really, really cool piece for vibes and, and electronics. And you have to play it with a track, but it's cool hearing the, like even the first note, like there's a lead in from the electronics, really cool stuff. So that's that's a great combination, I think. Yeah, no, I, I was, an earlier iteration of that, of this piece had, um, I was using these pads. I have a friend who works for Alesis. Um, he designed some of their drum their drum pads and the samples that um, come with their electronic drum kits. And so I was thinking of, oh, maybe we'll do, we'll have him trigger, you know, a series of loops with the pads. And then it just got to the point where I was like, you know what, <laughs> no one's going to invest $800 in these pads <laughs> to play this piece. So um, I would, to be fair, but most I, I, most I probably would too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There are a few nerds out there. Um, all right, so I want to know a little bit more of how does one uh, get to train their ears the way at, at the level that you have, because it's not only as a composer that I what I really enjoy about your writing is that there is such a clear vision and it's I mean, obviously, you always have amazing performers uh, perform the pieces, but it's just it, even just by looking at the page, it's so clear. There's no debris anywhere. It's just beautiful. But also as an engineer, your ears are fantastic. And this goes from like doing stuff with Jojo Mayer to doing Icarus Quartet and everything in between. So I've heard that there are apps that the rest of us who have issues with what is what's going on here? Should the bass be louder or not? That could help. But how did you train your ears, and how would you advise any young folks uh, to work on this? Yeah, that's an awesome question. Um, yeah, there are absolutely apps. Um, my undergrad was um, in engineering and recording, so that that was kind of my first musical training. And we had classes um, where it was just listening to white noise at different octave bands across the frequency spectrum and identifying it like ear training we like what we would do in you know identifying intervals um you know kind of a similar thing to that so there are apps that do things like that um my phone's in the other room but um there's one called quiz tones that i um asked my students to download and it allows you to like play an acoustic guitar sample and like the first one will have will be flat and then the second one will have a boost somewhere in the frequency spectrum and you have to identify where the boost is. Um, and so that's a great way to train your ears. Um, aside from that, you know, I, my approach it, mixing wise is I think subtractively. And I think I think that way in terms of composing too um, is what, what comes out, what needs to be removed from this. And so when I'm thinking about, um, you know, if I'm listening to a marimba recording that I just did, then I'm thinking about it from the perspective of what can be removed from this to improve it. And I think just going into it with that mindset, um, never boosting anything, always removing things, um, lets you take away um, and not sort of create problems in other places. So, but definitely quiz tones is, <laughs> is a great start, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so interesting to, to me to hear you talk about the recording stuff because I, most of us struggle to live in one world, like the percussion world, <laughs> and you live so well in two worlds, like you do both things so well. And one thing also that, that's come up time and again recently, especially I think accelerated by the pandemic, 
is as a performer, it's getting to the point where you, you are not only a performer, but also a recorder. You have to be able to produce recordings. Uh, and for job applications now, everyone asks for recordings. And I think at this point, they're not only listening to you play, but they're also judging you on the, the quality of your recording. Um, and it seems like, to me personally, if, if you live in these worlds so well, as you're composing, are you thinking about how the recording of the piece would go, if that makes sense? Like, it seems like those are no longer two separate things, but actually uh, one composite project. It's, it's just really interesting to me to think about. And like all the recording stuff, I, I don't pretend to like know even 5% of what there is to know, but just like the little bit I do know about finding out about like the sound stage, which basically if you're like listening with headphones, especially it's like, you can hear like the broadness of the sounds. Like, do they sound really spread out? Like it's coming from a large stage or does it sound really compacted? Like it's coming from one place. And like, I've done the tiniest bit of lightest editing work with that, but uh, it's just so, so fascinating. Like I said, that you live in these two worlds that are obviously interrelated so well. Yeah, thanks. I think that really, um, Ben, that really brings up like a, a bunch of things that I think are crucial for, us as a field to be talking about. And I think one of those things is that um, we shouldn't be at this point now, we as in like musicians and composers and conductors, and um, we shouldn't be at the point where we're, um, we don't have any skills in this area. You know, like this stuff should have been from day one into the curriculum. And I think we're finding that now. Um, I just got lucky in the sense that I did an undergrad in it and then just happened to get into, interested in, in uh, composing later on down the road. but. I feel like, you know, just like we um, think about scales and we talk about rhythm and we talk about, you know, uh, timbre, we should be talking about how sounds are represented in a recorded medium because, you know, aside from a very small fraction of people, most, I mean, even for musicians, I think most of our interaction with music is through recorded music. You know, I think about my day and I'm lucky enough now to, more than ever. Yeah. <laughs> now, and now more than ever, you know, but we, you know, even when we're kind of, you know, if I'm going to two or three shows a week, that's still probably pretty close. You know, if that's three hours of live music, I'm definitely listening to at least three hours of recorded music to balance that out. So um, I feel like just having um, an awareness of that, these are two different mediums and they're connected and we, it's our responsibility to know how they are connected. Um, that should have been there since the beginning, really. And I think it's, um, I feel like it's my, partly my responsibility as an educator now to um, try to get that as upstream as possible in students' musical education. Yeah, we had Evan Chapman on a very long time ago at this point. Uh, and it's just so interesting to hear about, like it, it, juries are worthless at this point. Like showing up and playing your piece awkwardly for a panel of three professors, like make a recording, like have a, have a final project you can go with. And, and Evan is one of a few people that I think really understands what, what that should look like, what that recording should look like. And I don't know, it always makes me think of this really long philosophical discussion that I, I don't wanna have or try and answer this question today, but music used to be something that was done locally. Uh, and if you wanted to hear a Beethoven symphony, you would have to go to somewhere where that was performed. And if you lived in Peru, you probably couldn't hear that music. 
uh, and it, I don't know, like there's this, like I said, I, I, I don't want to discuss this unless anyone wants to take the bait, but this philosophical discussion of like, have recordings like ruined music because they've taken it out of people's hands and put it exclusively into professionals' hands. And whether the answer is yes or no to that question, that's the reality we live in today. So we kind of need to go with it. I don't think that's going anywhere anytime soon. Um, but unless anyone wanted to uh, take the bait and go down that rabbit hole, which I hope the answer is no. Uh, Ksenia, I think you were going to tell us about Well, I, I, I don't <laughs> want to go down the, ra you want to, go down the rabbit hole. I, I don't, but I think but one thing to just sort of add to that is um, I teach a couple of recording classes at BGSU. And uh, one of the things that we talk about really early on is this idea of authenticity in recording and that there is no authenticity in recording. We, we aren't talking about- That's so true. Ever, <laughs> nothing can ever supplant a live performance. The drama, the, the being there, that can't be captured. So our goal as recording engineers and when we're making recordings is to make things that are naturalistic that are maybe larger than life, that are brighter than life and more saturated, like a photograph that's been touched up. And if we go into it with that goal, then I think these two mediums can coexist very nicely. And we don't have to think about one, you know, sort of um, disrupting another, um, at least that's that's kind of my, my take on it, not to push us down that rabbit hole at all, but I think it's a really, really important discussion to be having though. Well, Mike, you mentioned that that you think for performers, like recording skills should be discussed and learned from day one. What kind of skills do you think performance majors, like undergraduate students should be learning just to be able to survive and even thrive like now and moving forward? Yeah, I would love to see um, just a basic um, computer um, software interface microphone how do you get all this equipment set up and working correctly? How can you um, track something with a variety of stereo microphone techniques based on whatever you're trying to record, whether it's an ensemble or, you know, a solo snare drum versus a, you know, whatever it might be, a vibraphone. Um, and then how to take that through uh, a process of light editing, light mixing, um, and how to know how loud to produce this thing for various outlets, whether it's going on YouTube or Apple Music or Spotify, they all have different uh, parameters that you have to work within. Um, so I think just not going super deep, but being able to take something from start to finish and have um, have something that a jury can watch and nothing, you know, they're not thinking, oh boy, this, this is a rough recording. <laughs> Right, like something where where the quality of the recording isn't detracting from the musical performance. Exactly, because I, I think um, the, the point was made earlier that it's hard. I don't know that folks can listen through a bad recording. I know like folks like to think that they can, like I like to think that I can, but I don't think even I can when it's really bad. You're just like, oh boy. <laughs> I, I was doing some judging earlier uh, um, for something in Oklahoma and uh, there was one like the audio quality was so bad and it's really hard to just to even I mean to even judge but it's it's hard to separate what we think about well you know why didn't you set the microphone farther or those little things it's tough it definitely is and the, like just the idea of recording is so closely connected to our language that already exists as performers when we talk about something as being too bright too dark too harsh like 
those parameters exist on the microphone side of things too. And it's obvious and it's usually just um, a very practical solution to whatever problems that there are, but you just need to know where in the chain you are and what's the easiest way to fix those things. So it doesn't never feels like a big loop, a uh, big uh, leap for me to sort of, but curriculum um, I think is hard to affect. <laughs> I'm learning as someone who's new to working at a university. <laughs> It's, it's funny to me to think about this. One of the biggest obstacles, I think, is just access. Uh, and it's at any university you go to in the US, $15,000 Rosewood Marimba, like, go for it. <laughs> it's right there. Everyone can play on it. But I, I don't actually know of any university that has like microphones readily available to students. Like, there's no loops to jump through to, to get it. And I'm sure it exists somewhere, but mine doesn't. I, and I never had that growing up. Uh, it, might have changed now, but yeah, that's I think such a big problem here is access. And one thing that's Kate, that Casey's talked about before is like, okay, so you don't have like ten thousand dollars of recording gear at your disposal, but you do have a phone. Look, just learn how to edit videos from the get go on your phone. Like that's you can get three, you know, borrow a couple friends' phones, get three different camera angles, and just work on multi-angle video editing. And the second you do that, people think you're a genius. It looks like something you see on TV. And that's the, that is the most easy, basic editing. And the software is not even all that expensive for your personal computer. But I think that is one thing universities need to start thinking about is most universities own microphones, but students don't have access to them. And how can you practice this if you don't have access? 100%. Um, we are... We are launching a uh, checkout program in the fall at BGSU for microphones, interfaces, and things like that. And um, I put together this past, uh, I guess it was in the fall, yeah, fall 2020, um, I put together like a half Canvas course. We use Canvas for our learning management software. And uh, on exactly what you described then, which is how do you take, a, how do you make a video with your phone? And then using all freeware like DaVinci Resolve and Audacity, and uh, you know, and how do you make it into something that you know looks great and can be can be used for juries or promotion or you know whatever? I, I couldn't agree more. The access thing is the biggest um, biggest thing to solve. Yeah, that's really that's really good that you're going to be doing that. My students, you know, I, I tell them like, hey, do you have any friends who are technology majors? Like, can you just meet up with you know? And that, like that's. The best they can do right now, but at least you know the school owns good equipment. Yeah, and I think the more that these things get sort of just woven into the fabric of our musical ecosystems, um, the more that you will have that friend, like just like you have that friend, you know, the students have that friend now who's oh, I know a pianist who can do that. The more that we're talking about the, these things um, earlier in in musical um, curriculum, the more likely it is that you're just gonna have a bunch of kind of budding recording engineers running around who can help. And uh, I think that's a good thing. It's a, kind of like piano skills. Like everyone needs some piano skills, even if you're not going to be an accompanist. Like everyone needs some recording skills just to basically understand how it works, even if you're going to hire someone to do it for you. Yeah, we, we talk about that for um, performers who um, who work with, who go through my classes or whatever, who have no intention of being an engineer. Um, but my thing for them is, you know, you need to have agency over how your sound is represented. You need to know what the variables are so that when you're listening back and you don't like the way that you sound, that you know that it's not you, you know, 
that you know how to advocate for yourself in those situations. And I think that's crucial. Well, thank you everyone for uh, taking my bait and turning it into a meaningful discussion. <laughs> uh, but Ksenia, I think you had a topic you were gonna report on today. Yeah, I chose a bummer topic because we don't have enough bummers to, to talk about, uh, but I'm gonna sort of try to slide through it quickly and then we can go on to something more meaningful that Mike can enlighten us about. So I uh, took this from San Francisco Classical Voice and the um, title of, uh, of this little thing on there is uh, Freelancers on the Edge, How They're Making It During Shutdown. And it was written by Jim Farber and published on March 15th this year. Uh, and basically it talks about all the financial and psychological burdens on the musicians. Surprise, surprise during COVID. And three musicians are presented in there, you know, a clarinet player, a violinist and a harp player. And you know, it says this, it starts off as this heartbreaking story of a clarinet player waking up and looking over to their partner and saying, hi, clarinet, what shall we work on today? G minor scale, long tones, and all of this unenthusiastically and saying how this is really difficult. It's almost like um, being an Olympic athlete that you know is preparing but doesn't know what for yet. Um, and then there is a violinist who talks about um, her experience of playing for various orchestras as a freelancer and how some, even though they have a better budget than others, would just lay off the performers and not care about them uh, financially, while a smaller boutique orchestra in Pasadena did include them and immediately as soon as things opened enough so that they could live stream, they included the musicians and paid them in those endeavors. Um, and then a, a harpist who talked about how she thought, well, at least I don't uh, miss all those long drives to, to all my gigs. But then she thought, oh, actually, damn it, I miss it. I miss my carpool buddies and I miss the NPR, and, you know, all that stuff, uh, right? And that is the extent of the depth of this article, which I picked. I must have been... I don't know, very tired. Um, nothing new. I mean, we've all learned by now, we've experienced the shock of, okay, these are all the things that we miss. And for some people, it's very serious. It's loss of a job. It, it, is, uh, it can get you know, very, very crazy and uncomfortable and causes moves and changes of vocation and so on. Um, while others were able to, you know, keep some teaching jobs and start writing e-textbooks um, and focus on learning some new skills or enjoy the slow-paced uh, life, which in the U.S., it's, that's rare. That's very, very, very rare. Um, but what I thought was way more interesting is, you know, they all talked about how if you want to survive, it's all about going to um, recording and then sort of broadcasting that and how this platform that we used to use, which is social media now turned into a lifeboat for many to, to be able to make music and interact with people. And uh, then we would go back to recording again, which I have some questions for Mike about, but does anyone have anything else that they noticed about this article that's worth mentioning? Carly said she's got something. I don't believe that that musician who misses her NPR and drives to I, like somebody probably should just tell her you can listen to NPR at home too because it's possible <laughs> game changer you can listen to it while you fold your laundry you can you know all the things that you can do with your free time when you're not commuting but um, no one thing that I did notice in here uh, you know being a freelancer is is orchestras 
around the country and around the world responded in so many different ways. And I think some, even some that I work with, you know, were really communicative and really tried to get people involved as much as possible. And others were a little quiet and kind of like, well, you know, what are we doing? And, and I'm sure there's so many questions to be answered about how can we plan and how can we stay alive and, and afloat financially through this. But that's been a, a big thing. And we've all seen it too with major professional orchestras, how some are handling it differently and, and treating musicians differently. Um, but with this article, it might seem a little bit basic to us because we're all going through more or less the same thing with like, oh, all of a sudden everything's canceled and what am I practicing and what, you know, all of this. But I appreciate that this is written and I assume that some non-musicians and, you know, non-artistic people read this and are thinking about the shutdown and, and the effects and implications for artists in a different way. So I do appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I know I'm just being a jerk. I'm just woke up <laughs> on the wrong side of the bed, you know, today. Um, but the thing that uh, I, I wanted to talk about is um, obviously we do so much of our listening. Again, I'm going to say that trite old phrase with our eyes. And um, something that we've spoken about on the podcast before is how music did used to be um, this form that was experienced visually also, if you know, if you're able to experience it visually until the recording technology was able to come in and allow us to transcend this temporal and physical boundaries where you no longer have to be in the same room with a fabulous performer who lived 70 years ago, you can listen to uh, them perform. Now, a question for Mike, because he does I don't want to say micromanaging, but you are able to control everything from, you know, from the comp composition to interacting with the performers and shaping that performance. And then you record, mix and master. But as far as I know, you don't do video, do you? Uh, I do. <gasps> he does it all, people. Okay. Did you well, read then his bio, Ksenia? Of course he what? does video. What? <laughs> it no, says it. it. No. <laughs> what? It, uh, everything that I see, it says recorded, mixed and mastered, but it doesn't say audio video recorded. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, do, I don't do that freelance. I do that as part of my job um, at BGSU, but we do a lot of performance videos. Um, so, okay. yeah. Well, how does that fit into your vision? Because there's so much that you can do, which also you have to direct the eyes as well as the ears. How does that work for you? I, I mean, it's incredibly liberating for me um, because I'm able to control those elements um, all the way through. I think. I don't know that my music is about control, but I think my personality is in a sense, <laughs> um, not an overbearing, but you know, when a, a performer and I kind of come together on a vision, then I think I'm very intent on expressing that vision as clearly as we can. Um, so I, I love the idea that I'm able to take things all the way through to the, to the end. Um, but it does affect the way that I write music. You know, I think about, will this work on a recording? You know, is this just going to be, I mean, one example is like the dynamic range of a recording. You know, when we're live, um, things that are really quiet and also really loud in the same piece, I think are very effective just from a dramatic standpoint. Those same things do not always work in a recording. You know, if you're in your car listening to something and it's super quiet, you turn it up and then it gets incredibly loud, you got to turn it down. So the dynamic range is one way, is one thing that has been shaped by the way that my sort of interest in recording is that, you know, for a, a certain, you know, I may moderate, um, so to speak, uh, 
that aspect of it. If I know that um, this is ultimately going to be a recording and I don't want to have an overly quiet seeming recording. So no, that's, that's an example. One, one thing this all makes me think of is uh, the pianist Glenn Gould, if anyone's familiar, actually to that note, the Beatles too. Um, Glenn Gould at a certain point said that live performance felt like he was some sort of monkey going out on stage and everyone was just watching him wait, like trying to find a mistake, waiting for him to make a mistake. And I mean, this is Glenn Gould who doesn't make mistakes. <laughs> um, but regardless, yeah, he's a bit of an odd bird if you, if you want to read about him some more. But uh, basically he said he, he liked recordings because you could get it perfect. You could do so many takes and he, he even went as far as to say that you, a well-edited recording, you couldn't tell that it was edited. Uh, which I think is true. Like if you find a, someone that really knows what they're doing with recordings, uh, you can't tell that there's splices and things like that in it. And it, it made me think just a, a couple of days ago, I did a, a class for Carly's students at FIU uh, over Zoom, of course. And I just, it was, I used only pre-recorded things and I felt so relaxed, so at ease. <laughs> <laughs> to just say, uh, oh, I'm gonna you know, show you a piece I've, I've performed now and just slap up a good recording on, this, on the screen. Uh, but of course, making those recordings, I, I had anxiety when I did make them and I selected good recordings that I was very satisfied with. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting, uh, it changes perspective. And then at that rate, it makes you question what, what piece would make for a really good live performance? And I, I talked a while ago about there are some pieces I want to see live, some pieces maybe not. Uh, and I, I think it's interesting, and I've just been begging Carly in our little chat here to talk about uh, Coggle, but there, there, another piece is uh, Frederick Jesty's, uh, pardon my French, but Le Mouton de Panurge, which is the sheep of Panurge. Uh, it's this piece where the goal of the piece is for someone to make a mistake. And that brings up this philosophical debate. If no one makes a mistake, was it actually a good performance? So basically, I'm just egging Car Carly on to talk about Coggle now. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. It's interesting, this debate of recordings versus uh, versus live performance. And oh, God, Ksenia just put in the in the chat, Anuxuit, do not record it. And that's, that's, so, that's a piece <laughs> no. that, that only needs to be done live. It, a recording just cannot capture the magic of that piece. Well, you know, I'll take the bait, but I'll start with um, Glenn Gould first, because I've known this about him for a long time. And I've always thought like, wow, like that seems, I get it, but it seems so backwards because I like live performance so much more. And, I mean, also what a luxury for him. He's uh, well, one of a few people that could do that. If, if I told it, if I said, you know what, I'm done with live performance, <laughs> I don't think I would have much of a career. <laughs> I suppose, yeah, but I, I think, I think as far as, I don't know if anybody, Ben, you said, you know, feeling more, less, less anxious, giving a class and saying, here's a recording that I did. Um, if anybody experiences anxiety when they're performing or recording, like it's, there's something about it's being, it's live. And if you make a mistake or something happens that wasn't hundred percent exactly how you wanted, like you're onto the next moment immediately. And what a beautiful thing. Like, I mean, and no, no performance, no live performance is hundred percent perfect. It's just not. And there's something freeing to me about that, that you can just go, right on and you know you you make a mistake or something goes off or wrong or whatever and like it's okay it's fleeting it was just and it, it doesn't exist forever on youtube which is a beautiful thing um so i don't know i i kind of feel the opposite but yeah let's talk about coggle a little bit you know coggle i think about 
I think about his, his kind of big point was to be able to appreciate music with all the senses, you know, and, and he wanted this rehumanization of music making in response to the popularity, increasing popularity of recorded music and, and music being consumed in that way. And so you think about, you know, any of his works that involve theatrical elements, um, you need to be able to see it and hear it, but also there's something about the energy. I know energy isn't one of the five senses, but the energy of being in a room and, and seeing somebody or feeling somebody go through these things. Um, I don't know. So, so as far as I think Coggle would probably like video recordings and maybe would be a fan of YouTube um, over, you know, listening to the radio or whatever, but gosh, I, I don't know. I just really miss hearing live music. You know, if I could add to this, if, if anyone's for the uninitiated, uh, Mauricio Coggle's dressure is uh it's a bizarre live piece for three performers and they're interacting in all sorts of interesting ways. And Carly, as you're talking, I'm thinking there are some pieces I want to hear recording, some pieces I want to hear a lot. I want to sit on stage for that piece. Like, I, I don't think watching it from, I like, I would like to be able to turn my head and see things, which would be a really interesting mode of performance. And there, I mean, there are a few pieces that use these sort of surrounding the audience things, which is difficult because as the audience gets bigger or smaller, the performance can be really spread out. But yeah, Coggle, it'd be fun to take three volunteers from the audience. You you win a special seat on stage. <laughs> but yeah, I, I remember the first time I saw that piece, I was definitely too young to be hearing it. I I was probably a sophomore in college and saw Percussion Group Cincinnati perform it. That's one of their trademark pieces. And I didn't get it. I didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> and then years later, uh, and actually when, when Carly performed that at, at University of Miami during our DMA, uh, there was all this sort of energy surrounding the buildup to it. And Carly might have asked me to play it, or maybe it was just sort of talked about that two people were going to play it with Carly. But I was kind of like, I don't, I don't really want to. <laughs> and then after I saw Carly play, I was like, oh, I want to do, I want to take the chair. And <laughs> <laughs> it's so much fun. <laughs> Well, it's, it's funny, actually, I hadn't, I hadn't experienced it live until I performed it. And when Svet Stoyanov, our, our former professor, when he suggested it to me, I checked out recordings online and, and there were very good recordings, very good performances, but I didn't really connect with it. And I kind of thought like, wow, you know, I, I don't know if I really want to do that. And it wasn't until we started rehearsing that I was like, okay, this is going to be a blast. I, I think what you said, um, Carly, about energy is, um, I think that's a really great way to think about what the missing parameter is and that it is a concrete musical parameter. Um, I remember I, when I was taking lessons with David Lang and we would talk about, we were talking about a specific piece. I don't I think it might've been, I don't remember actually which piece it was of mine. And we were talking about what happens in a moment where everyone stops and there's a solo, like a true solo, like in an orchestral context. And that, you know, there's the, the fact that nobody else is playing, it's just one person. But the big thing is that everybody's eyes in the audience are on that one person. And so like, just like melody and harmony and rhythm, this, this idea of energy and this sort of unspoken dramatic thing, that is, that is the thing that's, that's missing. Um, uh, and it's the thing that we try to recreate in recordings, I think, by making them larger than life. But um, I think that's, yeah, that's the thing that we miss. The thing that's hard to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, and you can't score it, you can't write for it, you can't predict it. You know, it's it's like that's the mat, it's like the secret sauce in it. Yeah, but that's the beauty, you know, and that that's what makes every performance a little bit different. 
Yeah. Uh, I had a, a funny anecdote, I guess, because a lot of this focus that we're talking about that comes, you know, energy, it's, it's a lot of it is visual focus too. And uh, one of the reasons why we should have more musicians be you know, video makers is because their story of what happened in Serbia, which is that, you know, that a lot of the times the, the national television records the orchestra and in Serbian cello, the cello means violoncello, meaning, you know, the cello, the instrument, but it also means forehead. And so the camera guy is, is sitting there. <laughs> ben is already, he's ahead of me in this joke. But yeah. <laughs> I know where this is going. Zoom, zoom on cello. And the camera guy just goes zoop on the person's forehead. Oh no. So, you know, vocabulary, a big, big thing. That's why thank you, Mike, for doing your video editing also. Because these kinds of things will never That's happen. That's my favorite thing to say. That's amazing. This is a great anecdote. Um, Mike. Tell us a bit about all your fabulous professors and uh, what did you learn from Lang Bresnik? You had a quite quite the arrangement of amazing people to talk to you about music. Yeah, um, I, that, it was a great experience working with with all of them. I studied uh, when I was at Tufts. I studied with John McDonald, um, who's um, not a very well known composer, but is an incredible composer. Um, he teaches at Tufts University, lives in Boston and or outside of Boston, writes mostly only miniatures for piano. That's the bulk of his output, which is incredible. And he writes, you know, a couple hundred a year. Um, uh, but he was actually in school with, he was classmates with David Lang. They're both at Yale together. Um, but yeah, as far as working with uh, David uh, and Martin, and I worked with um, Chris Theophanides as well. And um, I, I mean, it was it was great. They each have their own style. Um, you know, when, when I started lessons with David, I told him that, um, you know, I said, I, I'm a recording engineer. I don't really like looking at scores. I don't like reading scores. Is it okay if we don't look at any music when we work together? And he said, wow. yeah, that's, that's fine. Um, that's so my old. whole time with, yeah, my whole time with him was we would, um, the way that our lessons would go is I would record, like, like if we were just starting a piece, I'd record, you know, like three or four little snippets either from piano or I'd have asked someone to, you know, a musician to record some stuff, you know, some sketches. Um, but I bring in audio samples uh, for him to listen to and we'd listen to them together and talk about them. And, you know, he would, he has like a reaction when he likes something. It, you could tell, okay, that's the one. <laughs> and I'd take that one and expand on it for the next lesson. And so we worked almost entirely in the sort of recorded domain, uh, in the audio domain. We didn't look at any scores while we were working together. Wow. Well, that's so interesting. How, how did you come to that idea yourself to do I, that? Yeah, I, I, I'm not really sure. I think I just, I, I don't really get much from, I mean, I, I don't have like a classical music education. I, you know, I was studied as recording engineering. I only started composing when I was much, much later in life. So I don't have a connection really with notated music. Um, not a sort of romantic connection or intimate connection in any way. It's a sort of utility. And um, I, I often find it misleading and difficult to sort of parse out unless you can actually hear it. And that's probably just a, a deficiency in my own training as a musician, but it's one that I'm not even really that interested in correcting. <laughs> I'm just, I'd rather hear the recording and talk about it or see the performance and talk about that from a very concrete standpoint. 
Um, I have this I have this rant I go on to my students about music notation and someone's eating it on a Serone etude and I pick up the page and I say what's on this page and they say music and I say no ink <laughs> it's it's and it's like and like the the very first thing I go to in music notation is that technically the first note of the measure should be printed on the bar line but it's not it's printed after the bar line and it's easier to, for clarity's sake, it's easier to read that way, but it's actually incorrect because the bar line change happens exactly on the first note. At the very least, it should be touching the bar line, but it's not. And so from there, it's like, yeah, I mean, so from there, we go into this whole like, okay, so this is what we call notation. It's, it's based on a tradition of, of how composers have notated music traditionally, but it has yeah, unless you know very specific graphic scores or something like that it has actually very little to do with the sounds being produced and there are so many wonderful musicians that that play by ear and so yeah it's like at that point and also you run into things with uh bad engraving where you have two eighth notes that are printed really close together so people play them faster or 16th notes that are double wide and people play them slower just because of how they're engraved it's like no that's that's just bad music notation. And so, so much of what students struggle with in music is just the obstacle of music notation. Just like in academic areas, like so many students struggle with math and it's not because they don't understand math, it's turning this problem on the page into a, you know, something they can work on in their head. So I don't know, that's my two cents on music notation. I hate it and I wish I could <laughs> abolish it, but there's, there's no way to make a symphony without music notation, so. Thank you, Ksenia, yep. for the, the I think that was mind blowing and we all went <laughs> a little bit like whoa. I'll be here all weekend. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My first reaction was like, what why would the first note in the measure be on the bar line? And now I'm I'm gonna be thinking about this, Ben. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, 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 I mean, my mind. Music is is organized sounds and silences. Like we're we're organizing sounds and silences with ink on a page that makes no sound. So Mike's approach to me totally makes sense that you start with the sound. Yeah, notate it later. Yeah, and, and that's how I, that's the way that I write as well. The notation is the very, very last step. Um, so I work with recordings mostly. I mean, I, I have sketches and things like that, but the idea of like painstakingly with pencil writing out, uh, even though that's like what composition it's, teachers told their students yeah, to that's do. So like fetishized among composition I've not, teachers. I've not once <laughs> done it. I won't, I've like refused to do it. Like I just, at this point, I mean, I don't know what I have 50 years left. I mean, I might as well, I'm just not going to do it and see if I can go the whole career without doing it. Well, if your music sounds as good as it does today, I will not criticize it. It's <laughs> no, a it's, great it's point. Been... And go ahead. I, I was going to say, it made me think of um, the, uh, I'm forgetting now, I just saw an article um, that came up on Facebook about um, like digital audio workstations like logic and pro tools and things like that and how when you open it up and it comes up with what four four 120 beats per minute in you know equal tempered tuning and so um this person built a new digital audio workstation that does not privilege any tuning system um meter um or anything like that so it's like starting truly with a blank page instead of bar lines because i think of you know think of how much music that we've experienced in, in the tradition that has just been influenced by the fact that you think that you have to draw bar lines, you know, and how that's sort of like squeezed and, um, but anyway, that what, what you said, um, Ben, made me think of that, uh, this person who I'm, it's escaping me who actually 
Yeah, so do you guys know the, the Andy Akiho piece, Karikura and I? Mm -hmm. It's it's the, the whole premise of the piece is that the, depending on if you're playing on pan or marimba, one hand is playing in 31-16, so 1 16th note short of two bars, 4-4, four, four, and the other hand is playing quarter notes the whole time. And that's really screwed up, and music notation can't actually capture that. And so like that DAW that you're talking about, it's it, like, it, yeah, so much of music is caught up in this construct of notated music. And with that piece, it, he includes in the score two versions. One is basically him saying, play this, and the other is a fully notated version. And I, I cannot imagine learning it with fully notated version, even though that should be easier. So interesting. That's really cool. Wow. Okay. Well, I think this is our closing question then, but Mike, what are your musical influences? Um, what do you listen to? What do you jam out to? Um, it's a, yeah, it's a hard question to ask um, or to answer. I mean, I, I like, um, boy. So when I was younger, um, Chick Corea, Herbie Hancock, um, Brad Meldow, um, I was very, very much into jazz and still am, um, but those were my influences. I didn't really know contemporary classical music existed um, until much later. I was finished my undergrad and, you know, mid mid twenties and I thought, oh, wow, there's other music being written now. Um, beyond that, I, list, I listened to a lot of Meshuga. Um, yep, I see Tool in the chat, certainly Tool. Um, we hear it, we hear it. <laughs> yep, no, definitely, I mean, yeah, um, as far as music, like from the Western art music tradition or whatever, um, boy, there isn't a lot prior to 1900-ish. Um, WC was a huge influence being a pianist and Ravel. Um, prior to that, um, I don't have too many things that I would call uh, influences, um, some medieval music. Uh, from just a compositional standpoint, I use a lot of the devices that were used there, um, Hockett and Isorhythm and things like that. Um, but as far as composers, I mean, I love what my colleagues and friends are doing out there right now. Um, I, I love what's being written now, and I'm sort of interested in whatever is out there right now, um, you know, rather than something that's in the past. So I'm always sort of focused on that. And the, the idea of isorhythm so so interesting, and I remember hearing Alejandro Vignao talk about that too. Um, we'll we'll leave that a mystery for anyone that's unfamiliar with it. You can look it up. It's I think it's it seems like a such such a good place to start composing. Like it's so easy to make something that would sound cool than than figure out what you did later. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, Mike, I wanted to ask you one more question before we wrap up here. You mentioned a new piece for percussion quartet and chamber orchestra. Could you tell us about that new project coming up? Yeah, so that is um, a collaboration with uh, yeah two chamber orchestras and and a percussion quartet, um, all based in Germany, um, a Duisburg Philharmonic, um, the State um, Orchestra, State Philharmonic of the Rhineland, and then the quartet is called Repercussion Quartet, and they're a group of folks who are um, super into electronics and processing sounds live, and um, yeah, so. That is uh, something that we just kind of signed the contract on fairly recently, about a month ago. So I'm working hard on it and just kind of in that phase where 
I have a million ideas and I'm trying to narrow it down to like half a million and then to a quarter of a million and then hopefully just down to one very cool idea. So. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time, Mike. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and we will see everyone listening on episode 282. Thank you so much, everybody.